today we're going to talk about Christian psychology, translation issues, the Old Testament law and the New Testament believer, Mormonism and Islam issues, and the security of the believer even when they sin. And this is all in the first few verses of Romans 8. So, so Romans 8, this is a seriously good passage. I mean, seriously good passage. And I was trying to struggle with thinking of how to explain the quality of this passage of, of scripture. Um, and so I, I, I'm going to give you an analogy. If you're familiar with pho or pho or pho or however you want to pronounce it, it's this amazing Vietnamese soup. The stuff is delicious. We get it, you know, in SoCal, we get it all the time. You, you can get it all over the place out here. But a lot of the world, sadly, is still in the dark ages when it comes to the glories of pho, the Vietnamese soup. Um, rice noodle soup, good stuff. Now, Allison, my wife, will actually make pho from scratch. She, she got the recipe and had a family member that taught her how to make it and everything. And one of the things you do with pho is you boil this giant pot full of, like, I don't know, is it chicken broth and a bunch of other ingredients? And what you do is you add a ton of ingredients to the pho. And it gives a ton of different flavors and all these different textures. So there's like layers of flavor and depth of taste. And then you pull most of these ingredients out. And you don't put them back. It's really interesting. There's one thing called the daikon, which is this big like root type plant that you put in there and you boil this giant thing in there just to diffuse its flavor. And then you pull it out and you don't eat it. You just throw it away. Or give it to the dog. The dog's not going to eat it, actually. But, but then you just chuck it, and then you taste it. Now, Romans is kind of like this. The book of Romans is like the pho in the sense that there's all these different things going on in the book. There's all these intricate flavors. And you might just simply taste this clear little broth, and you're like, oh, Romans. Oh, it's so good. But what we're doing is we're trying to catch the flavors, the individual flavors, as I go through the text. What I'm saying is I don't want to miss things. This is one of the most beloved passages in the Bible, Romans 8. One of the most beloved passages in the whole Bible. But people often read it and they only pick out the flavors they really like that grab them. And then they miss a lot of actually the passage. So we're going to take our time and go through it. Um, what we often do, right, is we read passages, we pick up pieces of it. But we want to pick up each piece of Romans 8. So we're going to be in Romans 8 for a few weeks. And we're going to take our time going through it. And I want to get the full teaching. And then afterwards, I'll try to sort of zoom out periodically as we're going through the chapter so that you can see how it fits in the rest of Romans and how it all connects together. Um, so let me, let me start by actually reading to you this. This is, this is what Peter said about Paul. Did you know Peter talked about Paul? In 2 Peter 3.16, he said this about Paul. Paul's the guy that wrote Romans. It says that in all his epistles, that Paul was speaking in them, these epistles, that would be a letter. So Romans is one of his epistles. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. The Apostle Peter said that some of the things in Paul's letters were hard to understand. People say the Bible is simple. Well, this is true. It's also very complex. You see, it's a rather large thing, the Bible. <laughs> it has some very easy things and some very hard things. And some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. So we'll take our time and we'll, we'll grapple with some of the harder to understand stuff. Because in my experience, guys who teach Romans 8 tend to zoom to the easier stuff, focus on that, and sometimes skip some of the flavor that's there, some of the valuable stuff. So here we are, Romans 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation. Now, 
condemnation is an interesting word, and the way it's being used here, it, it, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Condemnation is you are condemned in the sense of you are damned. You are condemned to hell or condemned to a life apart from God, eternity apart from God. That's condemnation in this context of Romans 8. There's no condemnation. Now, the difference here is there is such a thing as conviction. Christians, we do have conviction. You're in Christ. You, you fail. You sin. You blow it. You should feel convicted. You should feel bad about the thing you did. But what you ought not feel is condemned. Now, for many years, I would feel condemned. For many years when I first came to Christ, because I was discipled by nobody, pretty much. I didn't seek it out. I didn't ask for it. And I didn't really read the word. And so consequently, I was a very weak Christian when I first came to the Lord. And, um, and this idea of conviction versus condemnation didn't enter my mind. If I felt convicted, I felt condemned. And then I would have to have the Lord restore me and remind me of his grace and his love. And then I just felt restored. I felt such peace and comfort in my life. And then I'd fail. I'd blow it. I'd sin. I'd suddenly feel convicted, and then I'd feel condemned. But it says here that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great concept, in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it means to be in Christ? It doesn't mean I have to be good enough to earn heaven. No, I'm in Christ. If you, like me, struggle with whenever you feel convicted, you feel condemned. If you, the way I used to, if you're like that, I encourage you, do your own private Bible study of, Rome, uh, excuse me, of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And take your time with it. Casually, just carefully, thoughtfully read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, looking at the, the things that it says, and specifically highlighting what it means to be in Christ. Because that's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about. What it means to be in him. In fact, the phrase in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ is used over and over again. And it says things like, we are holy and without blame before him in love. That's me. I'm holy and without blame. Don't feel that way because that's what we're going to talk about as a positional truth. Um, so we'll come back to that in more detail later. Um, but you might say, but Mike, you don't understand. You say there's no condemnation for me. Romans here 8.1 says there's no condemnation if I'm in Christ. Like if I'm in Christ, no condemnation. There's no category of people who are in Christ and yet are condemned. If you're in Christ, you're not condemned. And you go, but I'm messed up. I'm really messed up. I'm like seriously messed up. Like you, you have sissy la la sins, not me. Like my sins are serious. This is why we've launched from Romans 7 into Romans 8. Do you remember Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. The things I hate, I do. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. What's wrong with me? I'm messed up. I'm a wicked, evil sinner. Everything I've said about all those other sinners in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, guess what? It's all about me. And so Romans 7 takes us to the depths of, the, of man's depravity so that then it can show you, yep, even there, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Utter grace and forgiveness, complete, complete salvation. In other words, you're actually saved. You're not just helped by Jesus, you're saved. And my heart rests in that. <laughs> and that's the only way you'll rest. You'll never have peace if you're looking at your good works to try to affirm how, you know, saved you are. That's, that's, that's ultimately not going to be the qualification. It's going to be God's grace, period. Now, there is a condition in Romans 8. You may have noticed it. And you might be thinking, but Mike, what about the rest of the verse? It says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the, to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is an interesting uh, issue here. Now, 
there are some who would be, maybe you're following along in your Bible, you have a different version, and you're like, I don't even have that phrase in my Bible. If you have the ESV, or if you have the NASB, or, or if you have the NIV, or if you have several other versions, you're not even going to have the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is because, from my understanding, most likely it's not part of the original passage. It seems as though this, this phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, was inserted from verse 4 into verse 1. It does appear in verse 4, but, but it's not in the most ancient manuscripts and most translations, and I mean the vast majority of translations, will leave this out. And we've already talked about this in the Evidence for the Bible series when I talked about translations and manuscript issues and all that. So you guys know, this is not a question of conspiracies. It's not about polluting the gospel or any kind of weird. It's just simply people looking at the ancient manuscripts going, what do we think the original text really said? Um, this is why even in your Bible, there's probably a footnote after Romans 8.1, if you follow to the bottom of the page, that tells you that this phrase is, is quite possibly not, not there. I, I think it's not there personally. And I think that that... Um, uh, that should answer that question for us. But here brings up another question, though, doesn't it? Is this an example of a doctrinal change based on a textual problem? Does it, it, does, does it teach something different if the phrase is there versus the phrase isn't there? And should I be like, wow, well, what's the theology on this, Lord? I think the answer is no. And I, I told you we're going to talk about translation issues today. This is the part where we talk about translation issues. Um, let's suppose that Romans 8.1 should include the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Does that mean that if I'm in Christ and I walk according to the spirit, now there's no condemnation. But if I'm in Christ and I don't walk according to the spirit, now I'm condemned. So the real condition of, of being uncondemned is walking in the, in the spirit behaviorally versus being in Christ positionally. And I would say, no, I think then Romans 8, 1 would be a description of what it means to be in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. End of story. And what do they look like? Oh, the, you can see it. They're the ones who are walking in the spirit, not the flesh. It's a, it's a playing out. So it's, it's position-based, not performance-based. Position-based, not performance-based. Allison's my wife. I'm her husband. That's my position. Now, if I'm not being a great husband one day, do I stop being her husband? No, but I mean, Allison's husband is the guy who loves her and cares for her. And yet, if I wasn't acting in loving and caring ways, do I stop being the husband? No, because there's a position versus a condition issue. My condition's not matching my position. That's a problem. But it's not a salvation issue. So it's not like you can say to people, yeah, you're in Christ, but you're not walking according to the Spirit enough. So even though you're in Christ, you're condemned. You can't be in Christ and be condemned. There's no category of people that are in Jesus and condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so I, I think even if it is in there, it should not challenge your comfort in the grace of Christ and the fact that you're not condemned. Um, so hopefully that helps ask some questions afterwards if you need me to clarify on that point, but we'll move to verse 2. So it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the spirit of life? Remember last time when I told you guys, I taught you guys vocabulary words for the book of Romans, a few vocab words. One of them was law and how Paul uses this word in a lot of different ways, particularly in the book of Romans. Sometimes he means a, a general rule of life. Sometimes he means the Old Testament law. Um, there, there's various different ways he uses it. Here, the law of the spirit of life, I think is talking about 
this concept of how someone's born again, they have a new way of living, they have a new rule of life that they're under, living in the spirit. That's the law of the spirit of life. So basically think of your new nature. That's what it's referring to. This is throughout the chapter. We're going to see this, um, this concept of walking in the spirit, being in the spirit, having God's spirit. And you'll notice in verse 2, here's another translation issue for you. This is, I love getting to do this stuff with you guys, but um, there's a capital S on the word spirit. What does that mean? It's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? That's what it means. Now, what you might not know is that this is a translator's opinion. Um, there aren't capitals here for holy for for the word spirit. It's just the word spirit in Greek. There's no capital or non-capital. It's it's just the word spirit. The only way to know if it's the Holy Spirit is to read the read the text in context, and then it tells you if it's the Holy Spirit. This is the same for the situation where you have the capital H when it's referring to God, Him, capital H. Many translations will capitalize it. That's the translator's opinion. They're saying, we think this is about God, so we're going to go ahead and capitalize that to try to help the reader to understand who it's talking about. Um, sometimes, generally speaking, this is a good thing. I like this. Okay, yeah, make it easier for me. Why not? <laughs> good, thanks. Save me some time. But it's not bad to, all, to go, hey, let me just be aware that the capital is an interpretation, not a translation. It's impossible to translate without having some small amount of interpretation going on. It's just not possible. If anybody who's bilingual knows this, you, you can't translate without having some level of interpretation going on. That's not necessarily a bad thing, just something you might want to be aware of. Um, but if you read throughout the rest of the chapter, you're going to see these capital S's when it talks about spirit. But I think that this is legitimate, and as we read through, you'll see this is the Holy Spirit in question here. It'll be constantly brought up, and there's times where it's irrefutably the Holy Spirit that's being spoken of. So the Spirit of life, this, the Holy Spirit who gives me life, that is how I'm living now. That's the new law, and that has set me free or made me free from the law of sin and death. So what's the law of sin and death? Well, we read about this in the Old Testament. God says to the people of Israel, do this and you'll live. Don't, and you'll not live. That other thing, die. So then this is the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. That's the law. In fact, it goes back even before the time of Moses, because when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he tells them of the tree, don't eat of it, because the day you eat of it, you'll die. Sin and death, man. This is the sin equals death. What will set me free from this? Because I'm a sinner who will die. Well, I need the Holy Spirit to bring new life into me. I'm born again. And this is a positional reality. Now there's no condemnation. It all, it all connects together. It's the theology of Christianity. Um, so do you see something now? The law is like the daikon from Fa. It was put in so that the, the flavors of it could diffuse. It was kept for a time. And then the law was in a sense removed because its job was done. But that broth continues to carry the flavors of the law. In the same sense, we look at the Old Testament law and we go, wow, it was placed on Israel for a time, for a season to teach lessons. It was in a sense removed, but its effect and its impact remains. And that is what gives us the fullness of the gospel. Or you're not, it's, your fall won't taste right. <laughs> That's the idea, is that the gospel will not be right unless you understand the law and its relationship. I'm amazed when I'm witnessing and sharing with, with uh, atheists or agnostics or anybody who, who doesn't, doesn't hold to the scriptures and how they really don't understand the biblical teaching of Old Testament law versus New Testament believer. And so, it's, so I, I like this analogy about the pho and you put the daikon in there and you take it back out and that's kind of what the law is. See, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. 
you're not under the law, you're not under its rules, you're not under its consequences, but you're still experiencing its flavors because there were moral truths that are eternal, lasting things that we learn from them, as well as other lessons. So I'm under a new rule, a new law, and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Because I want to pull together a few different passages of Scripture in connection with Romans 8. Luke chapter 3.16. This is uh, not as familiar as John 3.16. But it's related. It says, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. So we're talking about John the baptizer. Here's another translation issue. Do you know he's not really John the Baptist? He's actually John the Baptizer. It's a, it's, a, it's a verb. This is what he does. He baptizes people. He wasn't part of the Baptist denomination, um, which, of course, did not exist uh, at the time. But he's, he's John the Baptizer. We, he's often translated as being John the Baptist, but, he's, but this is why. He goes, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, Jesus, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is an interesting phrase, the Holy Spirit and fire. What, what was meant by this? I think that the Holy Spirit is obvious. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. I immerse you in water. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. I, I, I show you, dunk yourself in that water, show your repentance and your faith towards God. But Jesus is going to give you a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. He's going to cleanse the vessel from the inside out, give you the Spirit. But what's the part about fire about, right? Baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17, he goes on. His winnowing fan is in his hand. Now, that was a, a tool they used for harvesting, right? They, they would take the wheat, and they'd, they'd, they'd smash it and bash it, and then they'd throw it up in the air. And if it was windy, it would carry the chaff away. But if there wasn't wind, they'd make their own with the winnowing fan. The winnowing fan was there to blow wind onto the wheat so it could blow the chaff away. So it was, represents judgment, in a sense, or a separation of, of, of the good from the bad. So his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, that's where they would do this with the wheat, so the fan and the threshing floor. And gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Um, so this Holy Spirit and fire, it's like when you meet Jesus, when you encounter Christ, you're either going to receive him and get the Holy Spirit or reject him and get wrath. That's why it's the Holy Spirit and fire. Some people relate the fire to like a spiritual experience of being uh, you know, like on fire for Jesus. Like this is not the kind of on fire for Jesus that you want, right? This is the wrong kind of on fire. Um, and it's an allegory because you're not literally chaff. So there isn't necessarily literally fire, but it's a, it's a judgment is what it's saying. So why, why did I bring this up? Because this is the law of the spirit of life. This is the new thing. Jesus comes and he gives us this new thing that was not going on before. Even John, when he baptized people, they didn't get the Holy Spirit, this indwelling experience. But when Christ came, he died and rose, and then he gives the Holy Spirit to us. So I'm no longer under the law. I'm walking in the Spirit. For those who are in the Spirit, you don't need the law. Because now you have a new relationship, a new law, in a sense, that you live in. So for the Old Testament, I'm going to draw more of these parallels between the Old Testament law and the, and the Holy Spirit. Because this is, there's a great lesson to learn here. In the Old Testament, we were told, uh, the Jews were told to walk in God's law. And if you actually go to a, like a search engine and search the Bible for like walk and law, you, you search those words and you'll see it over and over again. Like walk in my law, walk in my statutes, walk in my ways, walk in my laws, walk in the things that I've told you to do. An example, Psalm 119 verse 1, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So the Jewish person was called to walk in the law. But as Christians, 
Where in the New Testament am I told to do this? What I'm told is in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. See, before it's like, if in Psalm 119, right, I'm undefiled, I won't be sinning if I walk in God's law. Now I'm told I won't be sinning if I walk in God's spirit. Why didn't they just do it back then? Because that relationship was not established until after Christ. Now you have the Holy Spirit. Now we can take the daikon out, so to speak. And now we can add the, uh, the, uh, the, the meat of it. <laughs> the thing we've been waiting for this whole time. Um, so that's the difference. The difference is you couldn't do this before. There's a, there's a real change. There's a shift in the way that, that God, not in how you get saved. How, how we've been saved has always been the same, right? Didn't Paul make that clear in Romans 4? Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. It was all grace. It was forgiveness. So the salvation method has always been the same. But the experience has shifted now that we have the Holy Spirit. So Jeremiah 31 talks about this. It talks about this new covenant or this new law, this new thing that's coming. And it relates to this as well. So let me read it to you. This is, this is some really neat theology stuff. I love this kind of stuff. And you can see the threads of the scripture coming together. Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So there's the law. We failed the law. I mean, this is the same as me. I failed God's righteous standard. But here's the new covenant. Verse 33, but this is the new, the, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Jesus comes and at Passover the night before crucifixion, he says, this is the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This is the new thing. And, and it enters us into this Holy Spirit relationship with God. This is, don't miss this, in Jeremiah 31, this is a theological prophecy. This is a prophecy about a theological reality that will take place because of Christ. I think that's really neat. Sometimes we forget that the scriptures were written hundreds of years apart from each other and that we have prediction and fulfillment going on. Um, the theology of the New Testament is actually embedded in the Old Testament, and Romans keeps driving this in to us as he keeps going to the Old Testament to prove the, the gospel. This is a powerful thing. Now, since the I can actually look at the New Testament and then verify and ratify it through the Old Testament, this sets Christian theology apart from things like Islam or Mormonism. I told you we would talk a little bit about Islam and Mormonism today, so just briefly I want to discuss it. Islam and Mormonism, what they have in common with Christianity is they claim to have fidelity to the Old Testament. They claim to hold to the Old Testament of God. Now, they'll even claim to hold to the New Testament as well. But they'll claim to hold to all of these things, yet they break the scriptures by having all these theological things that are totally against what the actual Bible teaches. I mean, because... Like it or not, I mean, there's, these are actually words on a page. They actually say something specific. You can't just do whatever you want with it and be honest. There's, a, there's not only in, say, Islam or Mormonism, a, a defying of the New Testament. I mean, there's the scripture in the New Testament says, for instance, that Jesus was crucified. He rose again on the third day. And this is a central, central thing of Christianity. 
But Mormonism, uh, excuse me, uh, Islam teaches that Jesus never died on the cross. He never died at all, let alone rose again. It teaches that God has no sin, and it is in Islam, it's the greatest of sins. God has no son, excuse me. It's the greatest of sins to say that God has a son. It's called shirk in Islam. It's a great sin to say that God has a son. I mean, how much of the New Testament do we have to tear out, tear out and throw away? But also, we have to tear out the Old Testament. And now we've broken the, the chain of, of threads connecting the Old and New Testament. This gospel message throughout the scriptures. Islam destroys the Bible, yet... Muslims are taught that they stand upon the scriptures. Mormonism does the same thing. It teaches things that, like that Jesus was a created being, that, that God is a created being, that he used to be a humanoid who lived off in some faraway place near a, a star called Kolob, and he lived a good enough life as a humanoid to become a god and be deified. And then, forgive me for this, but this is the doctrine in, in Mormonism, that God had one wife, or very likely lots of wives, and had intercourse with them. He has, God has a physical body. He's a giant, like 12 foot tall man. And he had physical sex with, with his wife in heaven or wives. And they produced babies. And that was us. And we have this pre-existent life in heaven. And then we chose to come to the earth and forget about that life for the chance of becoming gods ourselves. Yeah, this just, this just wrecks the, the connection of the Old and New Testament. It, it fights against all of the scripture to say these things. To think that there's multiple gods. To think that... Um, that God had his own God before him? What? God says he knows not one. He, he's the only God. He doesn't know any other gods. So and that's in Isaiah. And so this is, this is interesting because here's what happens. If you talk long enough with especially Muslim apologists, Mormon apologists, people who are defending that faith, what they'll do is they'll first start by saying, we believe the Bible and the Bible affirms us and our theology. But as you get more into the details of, of Muslims and more in the details of Mormons and their beliefs, they start to attack the Bible. And I've seen this happen multiple times. And they start to say things like, well, the Bible's been changed. Well, the Bible's been corrupted. Well, you know, this you can't really trust what it says there. So what they're really saying is, think about this. They're saying, we stand on the foundation of the Bible, except... That whenever it comes to our different theologies, how we're different than the rest of Christianity, in that area, the Bible's been corrupted. Just whenever the Bible disagrees with me, it's been corrupted. Yet there's no manuscript evidence to support these types of corruptions. There's nothing in the world out there that says that, you know, Mormonism might possibly be true and biblical, or that Islam might be biblical. So people miss this. They, they forget that Islam tries to stand upon the scriptures. But then while standing upon it, they're ripping pages out of it, meaning that it's not possibly true. It couldn't possibly be the case. So I think that's interesting. Uh, my point here is, I told you Paul wrote some things that were hard to understand, right? <laughs> the point here is that Romans is drawing together all these things from the Old Testament and New Testament times. It's teaching us the fullness of things from Jeremiah and Luke and, and through the teachings of Jesus and John the Baptist. And they're coming together in this new relationship with God through the Spirit that, that we have um, salvation by faith and, and that it's always been that way. And it's steeping that throughout the scriptures. And only Christianity can do this. Only Christianity can say we hold true to the Old Testament. In fact, modern day Judaism doesn't even hold true to the Old Testament. There's, there, aren't, there isn't any Judaism like, in fact, it's called rabbinic Judaism for a reason. Because they follow rabbis' teachings rather than the actual plain teachings of the scriptures. Um, and so, 
Um, if we're going to stand and have our battleground on the scriptures, that's a good place to be. What does it actually say? And that's what Paul does. And hopefully we're equipping ourselves to do that too. So you might want to um, play the tape back on that one. <laughs> I know that's a lot of stuff, but I wanted to get into it tonight. So verse 3, let's go on. It says, for what the law could not do, Romans 8, 3, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're getting these things, the, the, old, the old covenant, the new, the, the law of, of, of sin and death, the law of the spirit of life. We're getting, these are contrasting points, right? These are like the, the, the two very different issues, the flesh versus the spirit. But this is some really interesting things. So let's break it down. What was it that the law couldn't do according to verse 3? What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. Well, what it couldn't do is it couldn't make me right with God. It couldn't make me right with God. It can't get me to obey God. It can't get me life. Romans 7 says this too in verses 10 and 11. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived it, and by it killed me. It used the fact that there was penalties to my the consequences of breaking the law to slay me. So what the law can't do is it can't make me right with God. Why can't it do it? It's weak because of my flesh. It's weak through my flesh. The issue isn't that the law is a problem. The issue is that I am the problem, right? The, the, the wet paint sign just proves how messed up people are. <laughs> the don't step on the grass sign just proves how messed up people are because they go and do it. You know, tell someone don't do that and then they want to go do it. That just proves that they're messed up because a loving person would be like, well, why would I want to go do the thing that you just asked me not to do? But I want to, you know, because there's something wrong with me. So the weakness is in my own flesh. Romans has been teaching us a ton about this stuff in Romans chapter one. It taught us how sinful man is. We just look around and see the wickedness of man in general, that all mankind falls. Some people try to deny this. This, this is a very important doctrine in Christianity that man is wickedly sinful. Um, and what I find interesting is that they often try to deny this by pointing to imaginary people they've never met. Have you noticed this? Just think about the logic of this. If I'm going to say that mankind's not sinful, why can't I pick somebody I know as an example? Hmm. No, I have to pick some random monk out in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains somewhere and, and use them as my example and tell a story about a person I've never met. That's my example of a, of a person who hasn't sinned. And failing that... What will they offer then as their example that mankind isn't really sinful like this? Children. Because our hearts naturally go out to children. Now, personally, I, I believe confidently in the idea that there is an age of accountability before God. And so this doesn't actually challenge the Christian view. But don't tell me kids aren't sinful. <laughs> I mean, have you met them? <laughs> have you ever you met kids before? I never met anybody quicker to lie than a child. Or steal. I remember one of the, our, the kids in our family. Every time they go to our house, we had to like hide certain things because this child would want to try to steal them. And then you'd be like, why, why is that child's pockets bulging so much right now? And they'd be going around our house just putting things in their pockets. And you're like, what? And then you'd catch them and they go, I was just going to borrow it. And you're like, okay, so 
I mean, kids are, we love kids. There's a beauty in the children. There's a wonderful thing in kids. But sinless, no. No. Innocent by reason of, of accountability, but not by reason of being so perfect and sinless. Um, that's not the case. So mankind is sinful, and the attempts to try to tell us that we're not sinful really reveal that we are, I think, actually. Um, so then Romans goes on. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about how not just the world has failed in sin, but even the religious people have failed in sin. Who are, who are you? As soon as you turn and say, oh, all those wicked people, you point the finger at yourself because you've done the same stuff. You've done the same thing. Whatever you shake your fist at for that other driver for doing, you did that five minutes ago. We do the same stuff. In Romans, uh, it continues and it talks about how it all came about. It talks about how Adam, in Adam we all sin, we all fall um, through Adam. And it also continues to talk about what sin feels like and what the psychology of being a Christian is like, or, or excuse me, being a human is like, who deals with the internal battle of knowing what's right yet doing what's wrong. That's Romans 7, which my heart go, goes out in that passage because I'm like, man, that's me. Oh, wretched man that I am. And I, I've, I, I've yet to, uh, to get past Romans 7 <laughs> in my own life. Um, so it reveals my inability, my inability. And then Romans 8 now is telling us, but God fixed it. God fixed it, right? In the passage we just read, it says that what, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the sinfulness of our flesh, weak through the flesh, God did. The law couldn't make me right with God, so God made me right with God. The law couldn't because of my sinful weakness in my flesh. God fixed the problem, restored my relationship with God, undid my death sentence by taking it on himself, and made a way for me to have a new nature and a new life. How did he do it? It continues. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his own son. That's like step one. He sends his son. Verse three. He sends his son. How? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there was a, a early Christian heresy, non-Christian heresy, it really was non-Christian, called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. I wouldn't teach you this, except it's becoming more and more popular for people who attack the Word of God and attack Christianity to use Gnosticism to do it. Um, there are guys like Bart Ehrman who goes around suggesting that the Gnostics were legitimate Christians. Like, they were kind of almost the OG Christians. You know, there was the original Christians, and uh, it would be OC. Maybe it would be just original Christians. Um, there are those who claim that in the early church, after, after Jesus came and, and after the Christianity started to spread, that there were a whole lot of different versions of Christianity. And that you had what they call Christianities. And they like to maximize this. Now, the thing is, this is really easy to overcome. We have the texts of Christianity right here. You want to see what Christianity is about, go to the text. But these people, um, I think their agenda is a little different than that. They're trying to pull apart Christianity, to deconstruct it in a, in a bad way. But notice this, that the text here, and th these epistles from Paul are very early historically, extreme, earlier than the Gospels actually, mostly. And what we have here is this statement that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the Gnostic heresy, one of the things is that Jesus never really had a physical body. So in the Gnostic teachings, you'd have Jesus, and this came out years and years later, way after Paul wrote, You'd have Jesus walking with you along the beach. And there's only one set of footprints instead of two. But it's not because he carried you. It's because he doesn't leave footprints because he's not really there. So this idea that Jesus is like spirit, but he has no body. Because Gnosticism thought that all that is physical is evil. And so, you know, Jesus didn't have this. Or other Gnostics thought he had to be delivered from this. And so then you have Judas helping Jesus by getting him killed to get him out of his body. Weird, creepy stuff. 
that is certainly not biblical, certainly not Christianity. Um, so Gnosticism denies this. When it says here that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he comes and he has this flesh. It's how he came. Now, if you would, um, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because I want to talk about this. This is the theology about Jesus here. How is it that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh? So Philippians 2 is kind of like one of the chief passages in the scripture about this. Starting in verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but, and this is the part you're supposed to emulate, made himself of no reputation. You're, you just be humble and have that humble mind of Christ. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice this. Jesus is pre-existent and then he comes into physical form. He's, he's equal with God, but he comes into physical form so that he might bear our sins. He humbles himself. He's obedient. He dies on the cross for us. And then if you keep reading in Philippians, he's exalted, the resurrection, his exaltation. And so there he is, um, eternally exalted. Now, what's interesting here is um, Jesus has a pre-existence as equal with God, whereas we simply start existing in the womb. That's when I begin to exist. Mormons try to get around this particular passage in Mormon teaching. Mormons have been taught that everyone had a pre-existence. And that helps them avoid the idea that Jesus is somehow God in the flesh. So they say, oh no, we're all up there in a sense. You know, it's equal with God in a sense. You know, and then we come down here. But this is not the case. In Genesis 2-7, it tells us this. Because if, think about this, if we're all pre-existent, then Adam was was existing before he was in the garden, right? But what does Genesis 2-7 say? It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. He wasn't already a living being. He became a living being right there in the garden when God formed him. So he didn't come and inhabit this body. Christ, however, did come and inhabited the body because he's pre-existent. So we see a, a clear teaching there that I think um, would help a Mormon kind of shake away from some of the theology they've been taught. So man was made, Christ was sent. That's the big difference. He was sent. So he was sent, and that's what verse 3 of Romans says, Romans 8, 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's how he came, as sinful flesh. This doesn't mean that Jesus sinned. We know clearly from scripture he never sinned, but he was tempted. And that's the sense. The, the sinful flesh was the source of temptation. It provides temptation for him. Um, so then it talks about what happened on the cross. It says here in Romans that he condemned sin in the flesh. That's an interesting idea. God condemned sin in the flesh. In what flesh? In Jesus' flesh. He took on sinful flesh that he might condemn sin in that flesh. Jesus, in a sense, was condemned so that for you, there'd be no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the condemnation's already happened and you're not going to be charged again. Isaiah talks about this. So if you would turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 actually teaches so much about the meaning and the purpose of the things on the cross that it's actually more clear than many New Testament passages that talk about the cross, uh, even though it was written hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we, like sheep, 
have gone astray. We have turned away, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I've, we've all sinned, and God took all of our sin and laid it upon Jesus. He is there substitutionary for us. He's experiencing the penalty of our sin. Isaiah 53 verse 10 continues, we'll read 10 through 12. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So there's a future hope for this offering. He dies, he suffers, he, he's the, you know, punished for our sin, but then he'll live beyond it and there'll be rewards. Um, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He's going to carry their sins. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He will die for their sins. Not just suffer, but die for their sins. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Whatever sin you're thinking to yourself, what about this, Lord? What about that, Lord? What about this? Have you paid for that? Jesus bore that sin on the cross already. He literally was condemned for your sin. That's why there can't be condemnation for you because you're in Christ. And he was already condemned for you. Your sin was condemned already. Think about it. Think about it. This is the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is the incredible freedom I have. And it doesn't make me want to sin. It just, it just relieves my heart. It just encourages my life. It just lets me get up and pray. I can talk to you, God, because you really have washed me. Even though I blew it five minutes ago. You've already dealt with it. And I just want to be near you. I want to be close to you. I don't want to walk in that, but I'm so grateful I've forgiven. So if you would turn back to Romans 8, and it talks, so that's what happened on the cross. Sin was condemned in the flesh. Your sin, my sin, all sin, it was condemned in the flesh on the cross, already done 2,000 years ago. And the results are in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, Righteousness is necessary, and I will walk in this righteousness now in a new way. By, by how? By walking in my new nature, those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. So I'm going to live it out. Walking in this new nature, and as much as I walk in the Spirit, I'm fulfilling the law. Because if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So my obsession should be walking in the Spirit. Lord, am I walking in your Spirit right now? Just like the Jews' obsession should have been, am I obeying God's law? Am I following his law? Am I doing what he, what he wrote to, to, through Moses to us? I should be like, Lord, am I walking in your spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. All these, all these wonderful things. Is this what I'm walking in? Is this what I'm walking in? I want to walk in. That's my, that should be my obsession. Now, I think in psychology, we should actually apply this. We should realize that it's not just nature versus nurture. It's flesh versus spirit, too. Yeah, I've got a nature. Yeah, but I've got a new nature. Yeah, I've been nurtured and experienced things. Yeah, but God's nurturing me with some other things, you know? And I get to stand in the middle and choose to walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. And if more believers would realize this, I think it would change their lives. Walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. Let this be your obsession. Let it be your step-by-step -step constant thing. Lord, am I walking in your Spirit or not? 
Does this mean, though, um, that I'm earning salvation? Uh, if I'm walking according to the Spirit, not the flesh? Verse 4, I'll read it to you again. It says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're no longer looking at the law, though, as how we get saved. Rather, we're looking at obedience as the result of salvation, right? You couldn't obey before. The law couldn't do it because it was weak through your flesh. But when God gives you a new spirit, you now walk in the spirit. Now you're fulfilling the law without even looking at it. You're just walking in the spirit. So that's what it's saying. Um, this, is, this is God saying, look, I'll save you. And then that salvation will impact you. And you'll, you'll see it in your life. And uh, turn to Philippians 2.13. I we're bouncing everywhere today, but... I love getting to pull the threads together. So Philippians 2.13, this to me is one of the best verses for capturing um, how God uh, saves us and then what that looks like in our lives. We actually should start in Philippians 2.12. And it says, Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out my salvation with fear and trembling. This is a verse that's used sometimes out of context to just bash people on the head. Um, but the idea is that you're, you're, you're asking, like, am I really saved? Though? Am I really? Am I living out this salvation? But read the next verse. It says, for it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So really what I'm doing is I'm not looking to say, am I being good enough to be saved? What you're doing is saying, if I'm saved, then I should see the new life in me, God working in me to will and do according to his pleasure. So the thing is, if you look at your life as a Christian and you go, I am so backslidden all the time. My thought is maybe you're not saved. But the solution isn't do more good works. The solution is get on your knees, come to Christ in truth, really repent and believe and then he'll work in you to do, to will and do according to his good pleasure. He'll start to do the work. You need the salvation experience so you can have the good works. It's, it's faith brings salvation and then good works come automatically. Automagically, you might say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just like using the word automatically when I can. Um, so the, Philippians 2.13 is a great thing. For it's God who works in you both to will in your, in your mind and to do for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. Um, as, as we're going to continue through Romans 8, I, I want to I do this and kind of take our time a little bit. And there are some challenging things that we, that we discuss, but hopefully you're seeing that there's some themes that are coming together in Christ. Themes not only in the book of Romans, but throughout the scripture that are coming together. And as we master these concepts, you are guarded against lies. You're guarded against heresies. You're guarded against false teachings because it breaks the scriptures to believe those things. And now that you see how it all holds together, it'll, it'll hold you together. Um, but if there's a word we can, uh, we can close with today, I think it's this. There's no condemnation. Are you in Christ? Yeah, I'm in Christ. Then you can't possibly be condemned. Because who's going to condemn Jesus? His righteousness is yours. There's no condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus Christ that in Christ there's no condemnation. That the sin that I've committed has already been dealt with and condemned on the cross. And that I can stand forgiven 
by the grace of God. It's free. And it's complete. We love you, God, and we, we, we bless your holy name. And we just pray that we can live it out. We want to live it out, Lord. We want to not, not to earn anything, but just to say thank you and we love you. So help us, Lord. Help us to, in our hearts, know the love and the grace that you've given us and to then live that out in our lives and, and, and let us be people who are motivated by love and walk in the Spirit. We pray that you'd refresh us in our minds to be constantly aware of the fact that when we're facing decisions and we face challenges and we face mean people and we face hard stuff in life and stressful situations and things that we find frustrating, that at that moment it's a choice between walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh. Let us be mindful of that spiritual, spiritual dynamic to everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are-